Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 41. My name is Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at some early toccatas for keyboard. These now tend to be grouped together under BWV numbers 910 through 916, but they were probably composed over a six to eight year span starting in 1710. We're going to focus initially on BWV 912, the toccata in D major, probably composed in 1710, and the toccata in C minor, probably composed in 1714. These are virtuoso multi-section pieces which pay tribute to the northern German style of composers such as Buxtehude. Like so many of Bach's works for keyboard, they may have, for a time, been used as teaching pieces as well as for special solo performances. But, as a number of commentators have suggested, the Toccata, which had flourished from the late Renaissance, was now in general decline and increasingly seen as old-fashioned. Toccatas, whether composed for the organ or for single manual keyboards, most likely the harpsichord, were first and foremost touch pieces, which could be relied on to allow the performer opportunities to show off dexterity and technique. They were also thought of as improvisatory in style, at least the opening sections, which frequently reflect the ebb and flow of an improvised piece. But contrapuntal rigor could be found in the toccata as well, certainly by Bach's time, with at least one fugal section frequently included. We're going to begin with the toccata in D major BWV 912, the opening section for which a quick but flexible tempo can be assumed is only 10 bars in length. It begins with a rapid ascending scale-wise flourish starting on the fifth of the scale and shooting quickly up an octave. Arriving at the top, Bach then fills in the tonic chord from the top down. The second measure repeats the process starting this time a fifth lower on the tonic note. Measures three and four largely replicate the first two down an octave and measure five does the same for measure three. Of course, all of this is really just a flashy way of exposing the tonic chord for the first several measures. And while Bach may be finished, at least for the moment, with repeating the tonic chord, he is not yet finished with the D major scale, and in bars 6 and 7, unfolds it in four octaves, beginning with the D below the bass clef. It is at this point, measure 8, that we encounter our first surprise and what might be considered the first authentically improvisatory gesture. Bach introduces in the form of a rapid 30-second note descending arpeggio, followed by an ascending scale line, a secondary dominant seventh chord, not in the key. Even though it's a chromatic chord, it's hardly an unusual one. It's the dominant of the regular dominant in the key, the sort of thing we've seen again and again. But in this context, it does come as something of a jolt, because we've heard nothing but D major to this point. So any new chord out of the key will immediately get our attention. And it gets our attention even more when Bach sets up what amounts to a written-out tremolo figure based on that chord. This rather aggressive gesture is followed by a scale pattern and arpeggiation of the regular dominant chord, and that's where the first section ends. So here is the opening section from beginning to end. It's only 10 measures long. 
An Allegro section follows, one built on two central motivic ideas and a number of variants of those ideas. The first, rather distinctive motive, proceeds mostly in eighth notes. It begins on an upbeat by dropping an octave from the fifth scale degree and follows up with two ascending leaps of a sixth, the second starting a step higher than the first, followed by a stepwise descent involving two sixteenth notes and an eighth note. It's actually simpler than it sounds. This motive, which we'll call motive A, is heard first in the left hand and then a fourth higher in the right, and up another fifth in the right hand again. Here's a simplified example. After hearing so much unabated D major harmony in the opening section, the harmonic rhythm here sounds particularly active, with chord changes occurring on every beat. Already by the end of measure 4, Bach makes a brief feint in the direction of B minor, but as the motive is repeated sequentially down a step three times in a row in the left hand, other key areas flicker before our ears. Here's a performance of the first seven measures of the Allegro section. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard a hint of the new motive that begins to take control. It's shorter and simpler than the first, consisting basically of a series of interlocking descending thirds, each a step lower. We'll call it motive B. Here's the simplified example. This second motive flips regularly back and forth between right and left hands for six measures, usually against arpeggiated chords. Motive A returns as we cadence back on D major, and from that point on, motives A and B alternate back and forth, mostly in the left hand, until a new figuration pattern emerges. Let's hear the Allegro section to that point. The figuration pattern is a familiar one, operating on two levels, the lower level being the first note of each group of four sixteenths, which gradually descends, and the upper level pattern consisting of the other three sixteenth notes, which make use of a lower neighbor pattern, and which also gradually descends, independently of the lower line at first. It's simpler than my description makes it appear.
Against this figuration pattern, which soon takes us securely back to D major, Bach introduces a motive similar to motive B and heard first in the left hand, but switching after three measures to the right hand. After this mildly contrasting section of only six bars, Bach then reintroduces motive A for four measures, before lapsing back into another figuration pattern in the right hand, related to but not identical with the previous one. As the figuration pattern is switched to the left hand, we hear periodic references to motive B, or variants of it, and this continues for some time, as Bach drives toward B minor once again, where motive A is rekindled, as we make our way back to the original tonic of D major. But Bach is not through with modulations yet, and he is soon going rather far afield to land first in G minor and then B flat major, and even touching on D minor as the Allegro section makes its way to the final measures. We'll hear it from the last recurrence of motive A and Bach's brief visits to more distant keys before pulling back to D major for the final measures. Whereas the Allegro section doesn't seem particularly improvisatory given Bach's methodical use of a small number of motives, we return to a somewhat more clearly improvisatory style in the Adagio section that comes next. The first part of this new section relies heavily on a single four-note motive and its variant. In its original form, it employs in the right hand a descending three-note fragment which concludes with an ascending leap of a fourth making a prominent use of Adada's 16th-32nd note rhythm in a way that evokes a typical French overture. This motive is answered immediately in the left hand by a descending four-note variant. Here's a simplified example. Although the intervallic shape of the motive changes as we proceed, frequently dropping a sixth rather than descending by step, its rhythmic identity is both consistent and pervasive, occurring 11 times in the space of seven measures. Also playing a very significant role is a two-handed chordal tremolo figure, very similar to the one heard in the opening measures of the first section. Three of these tremolos occur, each time ending on a fermata and helping to pull us into a new key. Fast-moving 32nd note scale swirls also play a role in the first half of the adagio section, and Bach also introduces some new rhythmic ideas that will play a larger role in the second half of the section. But for now, let's hear the first half only, ending on an F-sharp major chord after 13 measures.
In the second half of the Adagio section, we encounter a bit of fugal imitation, starting in F-sharp minor. Here's a simplified version of the subject, which begins in the left hand and features a generally ascending contour, ending up an octave higher than it began. The counter-subject, which has a generally descending shape to it, appears half a measure later in the top voice of the right hand, what we'll call the soprano voice. You'll hear it in just a minute. As soon as the subject is finished, it's imitated at the fifth in the lower voice of the right hand, which we'll refer to as the alto voice. When that imitation is complete, we encounter a brief episode, characterized by descending chromatic motion in the top voice, subtle syncopations between that voice and the alto voice below it, and a descending sequential pattern in the left-hand bass line. We're still in F-sharp minor at that point, and after the brief two-measure episode, the soprano line, the top voice in the right hand, brings back the subject an octave higher than in its original version. From that point on, we hear alternations between snatches of fugal imitation, often with the original counter-subject in tow, and brief episodes, which employ some of the same rhythmic figures as the fugue subject, but don't directly imitate it. The episodes become increasingly lively, often showing off deft syncopations between the soprano and alto lines, and finally cadencing on F-sharp minor. Here's the first part of the fugal section. This fugal section is followed by another contrasting section, very much in an improvisatory style with frequent fermata pauses. The section begins with a motive that unfolds with a series of overlapping descending fourths with the marking con discrezione. No Bach autograph manuscript exists to verify this expressive indication, but it does seem very much in keeping with the spirit of this section which turns out to be a free-flowing interlude between two very metrically precise fugal sections. Here's a simplified example of the motive, which recurs several times in various guises in the next four measures. New ideas are eventually introduced, including some 64th note undulating swirls, 
and the tonality seems to fluctuate from measure to measure. After eight measures of this, we come to another fermata and a new tempo indication, presto, which introduces another series of rapid scale-wise and triadic passages as we seem to be moving to E minor, although we actually end up in D major. In the last few measures of this interlude, and after yet another fermata, Bach gives us a sneak preview of the fugue subject to come, with a series of unaccompanied 16th note triplets. Here is the entire interlude, beginning at the conclusion of the previous section. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard just a little of the fugue subject, written in 616 time, that dominates the final section of the Toccata. Considered in the abstract, and compared to Bach's typical fugue subjects, there is not much going on here. The theme consists of the first measure starting on the tonic, jumping up to the third scale degree, and then back down, twice, all in 16th notes. The next measure repeats the same pattern down a step and measures 3 and 4 just duplicate the first two measures. When, after four bars, the subject presented in the alto voice is imitated a fifth higher in the soprano voice, it is the counter-subject, which pops up in the left hand, that immediately becomes the driving force, since it exudes a greater sense of forward motion. Here's a simplified example showing the counter-subject in the left hand against the imitation of the subject in the right. It doesn't take long to figure out that this is not a conventional fugue. After the eight-measure exposition, we move in the direction of A major and begin an episode that features sequential variants of the subject in both hands as we make our way back to D major. After four bars, the subject returns, but in the bass line of the left hand, while the alto voice in the right hand takes up the counter subject, harmonized in sixths by the tenor part in the left hand. But there is no immediate imitation of the subject. Instead, we hear another episode, again based on a variant of the original subject and also the counter subject, one which hints briefly at new keys along the way. 
A few bars later, we've made it up to measure 17 at this point, the subject returns in the top voice, actually an octave higher than where we first encountered it, with the countersubject doubled in thirds as an accompaniment. Again, we expect to hear an imitative answer, but we don't. Rather, we hear another variant of the subject continue on in the top voice while the countersubject is presented against it, and then heard again a step higher as we move in the direction of E minor. We don't stay in E minor for long, however, and with the help of innumerable sequences, we're soon on the move again with a target of G major. Arriving at the new goal, we again hear the subject in the top voice presented along with the countersubject. And again, there is no real imitation, although we soon hear both the subject and countersubject now transported to A major and with the subject appearing a couple of octaves lower in the left hand. Let's hear the actual music to that point. You could easily argue that this section does not proceed like a proper fugue. But the fugue subject is with us almost constantly, sometimes in a slightly varied version, sometimes in its original version, and often subject to sequential repetition. Clearly contrasting episodes are in short supply, but Bach provides us with an almost endless variety of combinations of the two most important thematic ideas. He also provides a variety of textures as well as keys and introduces new features such as across the bar and offbeat syncopations along the way. And as we get to the end of the section and the toccata as a whole, Bach raises the stakes with a string of 30-second note arpeggio patterns in the right hand against repeated references to the original motive in the left hand, thereby building up a truly formidable sonority. But faithful to the sectional quality of this and most other toccatas, Bach finishes not in a blaze of 30-second note glory, but with another abrupt change of momentum for the final two bars which are almost sedate by comparison with the barrage we've just been exposed to.
We'll now turn to Bach's Toccata in C minor, BWV 911. As you'll see, it shares some characteristics with the D major Toccata, but also shows a few unique qualities of its own. It begins very much in an improvisatory mode, starting with a mordant on the tonic note and proceeding with a series of mostly scale-wise swirls in 32nd and 16th notes. But eventually, more distinctive rhythmic patterns emerge, and with them, hints of imitation. In measure 5, we hear, first in the right hand and then in the left, a six-note descending motive in 32nd notes and 16th notes, which had been introduced a measure earlier in the left hand. This motive appears four times in just the space of a measure and a half, bringing the first part of the first section to a close on a tonic C minor chord with a fermata. Here's a simplified example of this motive. After the fermata, we're immediately introduced to another, more extended melodic idea. It's heard first in the right hand, initially in fragmented form, but immediately afterward in extended form, tracing a descending line. A measure later, the motive reappears in a new version in the bass part of the left hand, this time with the top voice moving up by step. This new ascending version of the motive is then imitated immediately but incompletely in the tenor line. Then, in the soprano line, we hear an even more extended version of the ascending motive. Here's a simplified example of the ascending version of this motive. So, although the general flow seems improvisatory in nature, Bach again makes sure that the listener will hear the introduction as coherent even methodical. Let's hear the entire first section, only 12 measures long, closing on a dominant chord. The second section of the Toccata, 18 bars in length and marked Adagio, is, as you would expect, less technically demanding and improvisatory in its flow. It immediately introduces a new, mostly ascending melodic idea, which will come to dominate for several measures. Here's a simplified example, showing the initial idea, its imitation at the fifth, down a couple of octaves, and slightly varied, and an echo of the second half of the idea. The texture is fuller here, with four distinct parts generally active, 
and a number of across-the-bar dissonant suspensions. Bach hints at various tonal areas as he proceeds, including G minor and E-flat major, but C minor is never far from our consciousness. The initial thematic idea eventually fades in importance as we approach a fermata that pauses on the dominant in G minor. In the last few measures before the fermata, Bach introduces a considerably more active bass line that draws on some of the same rhythmic motives heard in the opening measures of the first section against a new series of ascending black chords in the right hand. Here is the adagio section up to the fermata. After the fermata, the texture thins again, and we encounter another metrically free section of four bars, which recalls the improvisatory opening bars of the Takara. Then, with no tempo change indicated, we encounter a fugal section, one with a long and somewhat repetitive subject, presented first in the alto voice. Victor Lederer, who has written perceptively on all of Bach's works for keyboard, refers to this subject as undeniably jolly, almost like a sailor's dance, the minor key notwithstanding. Here's the second improvisatory section going into the opening of the fugal section, where the subject is imitated at the fifth in the soprano voice after six measures, against a lively countersubject which helps push the key toward G minor.
At the end of my example, you heard the completion of the first fugal answer and the beginning of a brief, sequence-based episode, which moves us back in the direction of C minor. As usual, elements from the fugal subject are still present, but new thematic elements are also added, most notably an offbeat descending scale line in 16th notes, which interacts nicely with the repeated rhythms of the fugue subject. After three and a half measures, the left hand enters with the subject back on the original pitch level, but an octave lower. At the end of my excerpt, you could hear Bach moving to another episode, repeating some ideas from the first, but enriched with an extra layer of contrapuntal complexity. The subject soon returns again, this time in E-flat major in the alto voice, with soprano and bass filling in the rhythmic gaps with repeated references to the opening rhythmic motive of the subject, and filling in the sequential chord progression with suspended sevenths to provide an even greater sense of momentum. There's no direct imitation here, but we're soon on our way to a new key, B-flat major, which turns out to be no more than a brief stop on our way to G minor, where the soprano enters with the subject. But Bach grows weary of G minor just as quickly, and he returns to C minor, where the alto enters with the subject, and the texture is thinned out considerably to just the two upper voices in the right hand. The texture broadens out once again a few bars later as the left hand delivers the subject an octave lower, still in C minor. We'll hear an excerpt beginning with the ending of the episode leading to the return to C minor and the last two entrances of the subject in this section. As soon as both have finished their version of the subject, you'll hear a decided break in the action as we encounter another improvisatory-sounding interlude characterized by rapid scale lines, a fermata on the dominant chord, and a change to adagio for a final cadence on G major.
So what is to follow this brief improvisatory interruption of the fugal flow? Perhaps surprisingly, it's a return to the exact same fugal subject, once again beginning in C minor. But not everything is the same. When we hear the original fugal theme reintroduced, we hear another new idea introduced above it, one that originally seems as if it's merely a new contrapuntal accompaniment to the original fugue subject, but later takes on a greater importance on its own, becoming, in effect, a second subject. Here's the fugue subject starting up again in the alto voice in C minor, but now accompanied by a very active, albeit somewhat repetitive, second theme. After the cadence in C minor, we quickly make our way to G minor, where the soprano line picks up the subject and the new theme is heard below it in the alto voice. I'm going to play another excerpt where the new theme tends to dominate, at least briefly, even though the original subject is still present in the middle voice. But soon, motives, and especially rhythmic patterns, from the opening section of the toccata return, and employing sequential patterns and a strong ascending line, we head back to C minor for yet another statement of the original fugue theme, accompanied again by the secondary theme. But this is not where Bach concludes his toccata. Once again, true to the form, he closes with an improvisatory adagio section, followed by a presto rush to the finish line.
For comparative purposes, we're going to turn briefly to the Toccata in G minor, BWV 915. So far, we've looked at and listened to the Toccatas in small or medium-sized chunks. That's fine for isolating and commenting on the component parts of a work, but not very helpful for getting an overall sense of musical continuity. So, for the G minor Toccata, we're going to hear the improvisatory opening section, rather a short one in this case, written in 2416 time and consisting of a flurry of three-note single-line motives. This will lead directly into the Adagio section, in four parts, written in 3-2, still freely metric, heavily ornamented, and at times surprisingly chromatic, leading directly to the first fugue, marked Allegro and in 4-4 time. The fugue sports a rather busy subject and countersubject, and accumulates texture rather impressively as it proceeds. My example cuts off the first fugue rather in midstream, but we're going to move on now to the last part of the fugue as it passes into the next adagio section, also in 3-2 time. It is again heavily ornamented and shares a few motives in passing with the first, but if anything is more elaborately decorative, especially in its final measures. Again, it segues into a fugal section, this one even more rhythmically persistent than the first. We'll hear just part of this fugue, which is particularly notable for its gradually ascending swells. Mm -hmm. 
We've looked at two of the toccatas in some detail, and a third in much less detail, but I can't really suggest that we have in any way exhausted the subject. The other toccatas certainly contain passages of great energy and excitement, and although similar in some respects to the pieces we've looked at, they all harbor their own surprises. But it's quite possible, at least for some listeners, that in general, the musical continuity will seem strained for many of these toccatas, and Bach may be perceived as having more than exhausted a fugal development here and there, especially since he was at this point not working with the broad tonal spectrum which he so readily mastered in his later compositions. Nevertheless, we will end here, and for the next episode, we'll look at a pair of Bach's cantatas for soprano soloist. <laughs>